0: Lord, once again, as we look into Your Word, we want to get a glimpse of You and Your nature, and bow down and worship You as You deserve and are worthy. May we be able to see see that, such that it's just an automatic response of ours as we realize Your majesty and Your greatness and holiness, and not only Your grace but Your uh, Your justice and Your uh, Your work in the world today. So. We desire that your word just open up to us and speak to us this morning, humble us and bring us into a proper relationship with you. And Lord, if there be anything that hinders us from fully benefiting from your word this morning, that we would confess any sin and lay ourselves bare before you and submit to your authority and to your will and allow your spirit to work amongst us. We anticipate what you will do today, not only in this hour, but... uh, Throughout the rest of the day. So we commit our time to you in Jesus name. Amen. Today in the book of Romans what I want to do at the very beginning is give you a little reminder. We've talked a little bit about this before but I think it's good to review some of the things to get a perspective particularly in this area of judgment and God's justice Most people shy away from it, and rightfully so, because it's a difficult concept. Difficult not only because we know that we are guilty before a holy God, and we don't want to face that, so we tend to shy away from doctrines like God's judgment. But in fact, as we've said several times, we yearn, we desire that God deal with evil. We desire that he resolve the issue of evil. We're fearful of it because it's painful when God does that. So that's the concept of judgment, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. Just a reminder, we're talking about the book of Romans, written to the many small, probably many house churches in the city of Rome, first century there are a lot of archaeological remains that remain from the first century, including the Arch of Titus that memorializes Rome's basically destruction of not only the nation of Israel, but Jerusalem and specifically the Jerusalem temple. And in the, uh, the relief there, you can see Roman soldiers bringing back the treasures from the temple. Sad day for the nation of Israel from the Gentile, unbelieving perspective, a triumph, defeating them and subduing them. Again, it's only the Bible, back to the introduction here, it's only the Bible that gives us a proper perspective on the idea of evil, and it's only the Bible that gives us the concept that evil is bounded. The unbelieving worldview, the unbelieving mind that is unaware of eternal things, really, and unaware of the biblical concept of creation, a very good creation, and then a fall. The unbelieving world, all they have is what you can experience here and now, and we see evil out all around us. In fact, probably the main argument that the unbeliever will use against a holy God is this whole concept of evil. And from the secular viewpoint, the worldly viewpoint, evil is just what is. It's just part of reality. Now, it is just part of reality from our perspective, but it's the Bible that tells us that's not the case. From the world's perspective, evil is normal. Evil is just what is. It's also mendable because they're trying to pass all sorts of laws to prevent evil from happening again. But all of those are failures. Absolutely. (laughs) But it's only the Bible that gives us the concept of evil being bounded. And what I mean by that, evil had a beginning and evil is going to be resolved. I don't want to say it's going to have an end, because there's an eternal aspect to it, but it's going to be confined forever and ever. We're going to be delivered from this whole idea and experience of evil. So evil is bounded. We have the creation, and we also know, as far as mankind is concerned, evil had a beginning in the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Now, Genesis chapter 3 gives us the concept that there's even evil there, but it's not on planet Earth, or it's not even in the universe. So the fall of man introduces evil into the the created realm, and it not only has spiritual effects on mankind, but we know from Genesis 3 that evil has touched the entire universe, the created realm. So it has a beginning, and it has a beginning in heaven even. Angelic creatures fall, that's the biblical concept. So a holy God did not create a universe with evil. It is very good after his creative work in six days, but it's affected, and what we see today are the effects of the fall of mankind. So that's what we mean by evil being bounded. Now, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he, through the seed of the woman, that's not crystal clear in that passage, but the rest of Scripture develops the idea that God is going to deal with evil, and he's going to deal with it progressively through history. And he's been dealing with evil, continues to deal with evil, and he's done certain things in history to deal with the concept of evil. Well, there's the unbelieving world. Evil just continues, has no beginning, has no end. The little symbols on the ends of the arrows there are eternity or infinity, if you will. So evil just continues. There's no resolution. We can put band-aids on it, and that's what we try to do with laws and culture, etc. That's the unbelieving viewpoint. Biblical viewpoint is that it has a beginning, Heading in a direction, God's dealing with it throughout history. Beginning, God is dealing with it, and God judged it on the cross. And he effected what Genesis 3.15 talks about, is one seed of the woman, he's damaged on his heel, it's not a fatal blow, implying that there's going to be a restoration. The Bible tells us it's resurrection. But he inflicts a fatal blow upon the serpent that is the representative or the agent of Satan himself. Satan's the origin of evil. So it's judged on the cross, and then eventually, at the end of world history, God is going to confine it to the lake of fire, and forever it will be confined, and we will be released from evil, the moment we die, actually, or or raised, raptured, and never to be touched by evil again. So there is a resolution. The Bible is the only place that you find a resolution for it. Make sense? Throughout history, God has been dealing with it. That is the concept of judgment. The idea of God judging is God essentially separating out evil from that that he loves and that that he cares for. That is what judgment is. You see a vivid illustration of it with the Genesis flood. God separated out a family that he called to himself, that he worked a work of righteousness within them, Noah and his family, separates them out and judges the evil of that culture in that time. You can view every judgment of the Bible, God dealing with evil. So he will deal with evil throughout history. And we have Old Testament examples like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. He takes Lot out, Lot and his family, and he destroys that that is destroying the culture of that age, at least in a local area. So every judgment, you can see how he's dealt with the nation of Israel. Israel corrupts themselves. God intervenes in judgment. But that's a good thing. We yearn for him to deal with evil. And he, in fact, judges Israel in order to remove that evil because it's essentially destroying the nation of Israel. There's future judgments that the Bible speaks of. And then there's the ultimate final judgment of the great white throne where God will in fact complete his work of dealing with evil. So judgment from a biblical perspective is a good thing because God is dealing with evil. From our perspective, we fear it because it's painful. In fact, when God disciplines us, it is a form of judgment where he is attempting to separate evil from us. And it is painful. That's why we fear it and cringe under it. And the unbeliever doesn't like it because he knows inwardly that God will deal with that sin, that evil. And unless man has a right relationship, he will eternally be confined in the lake of fire and always be surrounded with evil. So that's a thumbnail sketch of world history from eternity to eternity. One of the main things that God is doing in history is he's dealing with the issue and the problem of evil. Make sense? So in the book of Romans, the book of Romans is one of the most theological books of all of the Bible that explains how God is dealing with evil and that mankind is basically evil. He suppresses the truth in sin and unrighteous. We don't have a right standing. And that's mainly the subject of chapters 1 to chapter 3 through verse 18. And that's man's condition. And we've been talking about the wrath of God. Verse 18, this whole section begins, man is under God's wrath, God's judgment because of sin. But God, beginning in chapter 3, verse 19 and on, he's going to deal with how a man is justified before God in order to escape that wrath, to escape that judgment, escape what God is doing in world history. So that's a little summary and an outline of world history in relationship to what God is doing. One of the things that God is doing. He's not only dealing with evil, but part of that is the whole concept of salvation, bringing people out of a condition of being plagued by evil and setting us us free. Now, we're still in the process, and we still have sin natures, but God is dealing with the believer on an individual basis to purify us, to make us more like him, to conform us to his image. That's the Christian walk. Okay? So, just a reminder of the passage we're looking at. Man is in a predicament, the self-righteous. Our tendency is to try to do things to be right with God. And these little tiny things that we do in our thinking put us in a position, well, now God is happy with us. God is pleased with us. But that is a self-righteous attitude that is deceiving, and not reality. All we can do is trust in what God has done, and not anything that we have done. Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. So the self-righteous find themselves in a predicament, and he's focusing in more on the religious mindset. And I take it that the religious mindset was embodied by the Jewish people. So he's condemning the Jews. On your outline sheet, you can See, the guilt of the Jews beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 8. Does that make sense? That put evil and sin and the book of Romans in its proper, broader context. So, much like he did in chapter 1, verse 18, when he's dealing with all humanity, when he dealt with all humanity, he says humanity is under the wrath of God. Now, specifically, the self-righteous or the Jewish mindset or the religious mindset also is in a similar predicament. They face judgment. That's verse 1 of chapter 2. And for those that come from that mindset, they need to be reminded of the Old Testament that lays out the principles of God's judgment. In other words, these are the principles by which God separates out sin, or judges sin, and the Jews needed to be reminded of this because they thought, well, they were exempt. They thought they were privileged, and they were. They were privileged, but that privilege and that heritage did not exempt them from the judgment that God has announced uh, very early. So chapter 2, verses 2-16 through lay out these principles. And we're coming close to the end of that section. Uh, We won't quite complete it today. After that, now he's going to prove the guilt of the Jews, verses 17 through 29. What he's doing is trying to convince all readers, all mankind, that we stand in an unrighteous position before God and we are in a position deserving God's judgment. In God's dealing. So he has to prove that. Very theological, using language of the courtroom, because we are liable before the ultimate judge of the universe. Then chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he's going to deal with objections. I use the word P there, the protests of the Jews, just to keep with the alliteration there. So we have the predicament, P, Predicament of self-righteous, verse 1, principles of judgment, 2 through 16, the proof of Jews' guilt, 17 through 29, and then the protest of the Jews. So that puts this section together on one slide there. I like to summarize everything on one slide. I gave you all of world history on one slide. Here is uh, chapter 2 through 3, 8, all on one slide. Okay? Put it in context. Now, let's go back to the principles of judgment. We've already seen that it's based on absolute truth. An omniscient God that sees everything, that knows everything, can present in a courtroom all of that evidence that convicts all of humanity. There's all the truth laid bare. So it's going to be based on truth. Secondly, verses 3 and 4, it's based on the concept that no one escapes. And he says that because the Jewish mindset thought, well, we're exempt. We're called. We are the elect. We are the people of God. We have the covenants. And he's going to bring all these home when we get to verse 17, but he lays out principle of inescapability. No one escapes. No one's... Good works will stand up in the court of of law that God will deal with. Thirdly, it's based on conduct. Man's conduct doesn't measure up. Our good deeds, according to Isaiah, are like filthy rags. And that passage actually is somewhat more, what's the word, more vivid than simply filthy rags. It actually has... In fact, it means menstrual rags. That's the evaluation of our righteous deeds. So it's based on conduct, and when all of our conduct is laid out in a court of law, we will all fall short, as Paul says in the book of Romans. Last time, or last couple of times, we talked about God is going to be impartial. It's based on the principle of impartiality, and that leads into verse 12 that we'll pick up this morning. It's based also on the revelation that God has given. We already saw from chapter 1, everyone has a revelation from God. And verse 20 says, therefore, all of humanity is without excuse. So no one can say that God has not made himself known, no one that has ever lived, or no one that will ever live. So based on Revelation, so he's going to kind of expand that in verses 12 through 16. And that's where we pick up. Now, I've made another chart for 12 through 16 because it's kind of a long little... It's two sentences in the the New American Standard, but it all kind of hangs together. And I've come up with another chart to kind of see how all the parts fit together. So let's take a look at it. In verse 11, we have the principle of impartiality that we looked at before, last week, and how does verse 12 begin? What's the first word there? Hmm? For. For. What does that word do? It ties it to whatever came before. In other words, he makes a statement, or series of statements, and now he's going to probably narrow it down to something. In other words, he's going to expand it, if you will. So I see a relationship from, from the principle of God being impartial. In other words, he has no favorites, even though the nation of Israel have a special position in terms of judgment. They are not favored over anyone else. They face the same principles. there are certain truths related to the principle of impartiality. And in verse 12, we looked at it last time, I'll review it. He's going to talk about judgment based on revelation. It's going to also be impartial, but some that are privileged have more revelation than others. So how does this fit in? Well, the more revelation that one has, the more accountable that makes them. And that means that they are judged on a slightly different standard because they have more revelation. Others with less revelation, they don't get off the hook, but they do have a revelation that he's going to talk about, and we'll expand that. So verse 12 kind of summarizes that principle of judgment based on revelation. And then what do we have in verse 13? How does it begin? There's another four. So he's going to expand something that he's mentioned in uh, verse 12. So we have a 4, and he's going to talk about the Jews that he's already announced in verses uh, 9 and 10, that they are not exempt. God's going to deal with them impartially, just like he deals with everyone else. So now he's going to expand that concept. What about the Jews that have the law? In other words, they have the specific revelation They have the Mosaic Law that is specifically outlining God's principles in terms of how to live, how to respond to Him, how to have a right relationship. They have clear, written revelation. The Mosaic Law. How's God going to deal with them? Well, it's impartial in that God's not going to give them the privilege of having the law. The law specifies that they are accountable to it, and they stand condemned. That's essentially what he says. And then, how does verse 14 begin? And that runs through 14 and 15. Four. Four, again. <laughs> so he's just building a case, if you will. Remember, this is like a legal case that he's developing in a courtroom, and he's building a case after you know one aspect after another aspect and builds upon it. So it starts with another four, and now he's going to deal with those without law, which would be all those that are non-Jews. The Bible calls them Gentiles, or in some context, Greeks. What about them? They don't have the law. Does that mean they get off? Does that mean that God's judgment is more lenient for them? Well, he's going to deal with the Gentiles who don't have a law, and in reality, they have a law as well. It's not specified, it's not the Mosaic law, it's not specific, it's not written out, it's not spelled out, but there's a broader law that they fall under. So that's verses 14 and 15. And then, how does uh, verse 16 begin? It doesn't have a floor, but it has a, what did you say Connie? Mine says in. Okay, in, or the New American Standard uses when, we have a kind of a time frame, anticipating a future. So that whole verse fits into a final time frame when there's a final judgment based on the revelation of the gospel. So I divided the outline sheet here. We have revelation of the Mosaic Law, 12 and 13. And then now we have the revelation of a moral law or an unseen spiritual law. We'll expand upon that. That's 14 and 15. And then in verse 16, we have revelation of the gospel. And ultimately, all are accountable to the gospel message. And the gospel message has also existed in not beginning in the first century. It transcends time as well. So there's another chart of verses 11 through 16, all on one sheet. Give you the context. Okay, makes sense? See how it fits in? Sometimes we get bogged down when we read the Scriptures with all of these parts that are thrown together, and that's why I like to separate them out and kind of put their relationship. And I think that's how it fits together. So let's go back to verse 12. So we have judgment based on Revelation and the revelation of the Mosaic Law 12 and 13. And New American Standard puts them together in one sentence but it's not detached from that that follows because the four kind of brings them together. In fact, the four of verse 12 ties it to uh, verse 11 and the discussion on impartiality. So here's the whole sentence. And when we look at a sentence, it's got a lot of parts to it. We always try to break it down, try to understand it. And the way our minds are built are such that when... God built language into us. He put within us certain structures in our, in our mind and in our thinking such that when we communicate, language is built upon certain principles. We don't think about them, but if we recognize them, it helps us to understand a passage that is hard to understand. So the first thing that we look at in a long sentence because we want to get at the heart of what it's talking about. We want to get at the main independent clause. Last time we identified it as the subject of the sentence is all. So he's dealing with kind of a universal concept. All, and then he's going to specify, and then the verb, all will perish. So There's the subject and the verb. That's the main emphasis of that whole sentence. Everything else is just telling you something about The all and the action perishing. And more specifically, the independent clause, all will also perish without law. And in this case, we have two independent clauses. We have an and. Now we have another all. All. And then we have a dependent clause. All will be judged by the law. See how it all fits together? Two independent clauses. The first one specifies who the all are. The all who have sinned without the law, that's a subordinate clause that tells us a little bit more about the all. Okay, For all who have sinned without the law, then the verb and the last part of the the independent clause will also perish without law. Similarly, the last half there, and all who, who are the all, all who have sinned under the law, and then we have another verb, will be judged. By the law. Now we have a semicolon. So now that's the first part. And then verse 13. The four is going to tell us something about what he just talked about. Make sense? See how it fits together? Okay. And as i already mentioned. The four ties it back to at least verse 11. The principle of impartiality. He's going to expand that. God's going to deal impartially. But we have... Something of an inequity here in terms of some people have more revelation than others. So how does impartially fit in with that? He's going to explain that. And how about those that don't have the written law? How is God going to deal impartially with them? There's an inequality there. They don't have something. Well, they have something else. And God's going to deal with them on the basis of that something else, which is a broader law. Make sense? Okay. So the 4 ties it back, and now 12 is going to deal with this judgment based on revelation. For all, and we looked at this last time, who have sinned without the law. And what did we stress last time? This passage deals with the standard. And notice over and over the concept of law. So we're talking about legal issues. We're talking about Things that deal with the courtroom. And I mentioned last time the phrase without law is just one word in the Greek text, and I've given you the word there, anamos, anamos, and it occurs only two times, and it occurs in this context those two times. Without law will also perish, same word, anamos, without the law. Okay? Okay. Now, all of the rest of the usages are nomos, without the alpha, without the A before it. And what do you do in Greek when you add an alpha to a noun? What does it do? It negates it. It's kind of like in English when we put un on, on something, it uns it <laughs> or it uh, negates it or gives you something like the contrast or the opposite. So in Greek... Greek does that by adding an alpha. So when you have anamos, you remove the alpha and replace the omega with an omicron, so it's not the long O. You have nomas, Nomos. That's the very common word in the New Testament, very common in the Old Testament, over 200 times in the Old Testament. We have the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's namas, and it occurs uh, almost 200 times in the New Testament. In fact, it's very frequent in the book of Romans. As you can see, even here, right here, we have, if you include the anomos, where do we have it? Six times, just in this passage. Okay, So we have without law two times, and all who have sinned under the law, namas, will be judged by the law, namas. Then verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law, namas, who are just before God, but the doers of the namas will be justified six times. And if you keep going, 14 through 16, for when Gentiles who do not have the namas, again, do instinctively the things of the law, there it is again, Namas, these not having, there it is again, not having the law. Then I've kind of noticed a little difference in even the translation. The translators are saying there's some difference here. The word is the same in the Greek, still namas, but Paul is using it in a slightly different way. They have, they are a law, and I put it in pink there, a law to themselves. That's the concept of a moral law. I think the others are referring to another usage of the word law. Then in 15, we have it again. So four times in 14 through 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So the emphasis of this passage has something at least to do with the legal concept of God revealing himself in a code of some sort, And that code has some aspects that are unwritten as well. So that's kind of a summary of the whole thing. We went very quickly last week. Let me review this, particularly for those that weren't with us, but also to review us. There's namas. That's the word for law. It's translated law in the New Testament. The word is namas. Everybody got that? Last time we said if you trace all of the usages of that Greek word in the New Testament, you're going to find out that it's used in different ways, slightly different ways. Sometimes, and I, we looked at some of these examples, so let me just review them. Sometimes it can be used of the Old Testament in general, the whole Old Testament. And you study the context. What does the the clues in the context give me to understand how he's using this word in this context? I mentioned last time, Paul uses the word namas in every single one of these categories. And by the way, there's a couple of others that are not in Paul. I've just listed the ones that are in Paul. In chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, he uses namas. And if you study that context... He has just been quoting passages from what he is calling the law. So in 19 and 20, he's following up with what the law says, and he has just quoted some passages. They're not from the Pentateuch, or they're not from the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, many of those are from the Psalms. And if they're from the Psalms, and he's using the word law in that context, he's probably using it in a broad sense to refer to the entire Old Testament. And he selects a few passages from the Old Testament and he identifies that as the law. Now, sometimes it's referred to, or it refers to the Pentateuch. For example, in 321, he specifies the law and the prophets. The New Testament uses that little phrase very commonly. The law are the first five books of Moses. The prophets are everything else, including Joshua, including 1st and 2nd Samuel, including Kings. Because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the prophetic books include the historical prophets not just those that we think of as predictive prophets. So it includes all of the old, the rest of the Old Testament. The Law and the Prophets would be first five books, Law of Moses, and the rest of the Old Testament. So he's narrowing it down to the Pentateuch in 321. Now, Jesus also, in some places, speaks of the Law and the Prophets and the Writings. Okay, and in the Jewish culture, they divided the Tanakh or the Old Testament into three parts. So when it refers to the Law and the Prophets, it combines two parts together. But when it uses the Law and the Prophets and the writings, it's the Jewish way. In fact, the Jewish Bible is divided into those three parts the Law, first five books of Moses. The prophets, beginning with Joshua, extending through the prophets, and then the writings include like poetic books. I think it includes Lamentations. It includes even the book of Daniel, but it includes other writings. Does that make sense? The point I'm making is Namas, in verse 21, refers to the Pentateuch, or the first five books. It could also refer, and I think because it's dealing with specific stipulations, we'll see in chapter 2, verse 20, and also in verse 23. These are all in the book of Romans. It refers more specifically to the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, because it's dealing with stipulations of the law. Make sense? So that's chapter 2, verse 20 and 23. It can even be used, and Paul uses it, and by the way, there's other places where you can find it used in the sense of civil law, kind of broadly, or in that time frame, it would be Roman law, and in chapter 7, 1 through 3, <coughs> Paul is he's using an illustration of marriage. It's an illustration, a person that is married is joined to that person, and that remains until death. And then one is set free. He's using that as an illustration of justification by faith and being separated basically from the Mosaic law. And now we have been set free under Christ. It's just an illustration in the context. But the point I'm making at this point in the illustration, he's referring to the law. And it would have been Roman law dealing with marriage. So he's dealing, talking about civil law. Now, it's used in the Gospels in that sense as well. The word namas, it's the same word. Not a different word, just different ways that it's used. Now, in the hermeneutics course, I illustrate that words have a range of meaning. And this is just true in general. We have words that have a range of meaning. I use the illustration, well, let me backtrack. I gave you a trick question last week. Let me see if you remember it. Trick question. Does a dictionary give you definitions? No. No. All right. Most of you said yes last week, right? (laughs) Right But it's a trick question. Dictionaries, strictly speaking, don't give definitions. What does a dictionary do? Usage. Very good. He remembers. It gives you how a word is used, and it lists... Number one, it's used in this way. Number two, it's used in this way. So it gives you the range of meaning, the possible way a word can be used. That's a range of meaning. What I'm giving you here is the range of meaning, particularly in the book of Romans, of the word namas. And you look, where do you get a definition for a word? Context. How is an author using that word in this particular context. And in that, uh, what was it, verse 14, we see even in the same context, sometimes we change the way we use a word, right? Now, in the hermeneutics course, I use the illustration of a word that has a wide range of meaning to illustrate the concept. Most words don't have so wide a range of meaning, now in this case, Namas, has a relatively wide range of meaning. It could be used to refer to the Old Testament in general. It could be used to narrow it down to the first five books only. It could be used in terms of the Mosaic Code within the Pentateuch. In fact, it could even be used of the Ten Commandments. I don't have that on the list. And it can be used in the sense of a civil law, It can also be used in terms of a moral law, and in verse 14, I think he's using it in the sense of a moral law. We'll talk about that. In other words, a law that is not the Mosaic law or code, but there's a broader law. We'll talk about that when we get there. Okay. Back to my illustration, the word that I use to illustrate a wide range of meaning is the word trunk. If you look the word trunk up in a dictionary, what's it going to do? What does the word trunk mean? Well, you need a context, right? And you'll find in a dictionary all of the different ways that that word could be used. So if you have a context relating to an automobile, what flashes through your mind when you hear the word trunk? Kind of a back compartment where you can put Another kind of trunk. (laughs) You can put things in it, but if you're talking about an African animal, that trunk, relating to an automobile, doesn't flash through your mind. If the context is the trunk of this animal, immediately you think of this huge elephant-like or elephant animal with a trunk. Two very different ways the word is used. It's spelled the same, it sounds the same, same word, Different usage, depending on context. See what we mean here? What about, you're talking about your son, and he climbs up uh, something to get into his tree house that he's built on a... What is he climbing up on? A tree. Not that box in the back of an automobile. Not that animal. He's not crawling on that. He's crawling up a tree. A trunk. trunk. So words have meaning only in particular context. That's true of biblical words. That's language. It's the way our minds are built. So words have a range of meaning. Make sense? And there's other uses of the word of trunk. We don't need to go into all of them, but that kind of illustrates the wide range. You could even think of a trunk in an attic. What's Sir car doing up in the attic? How did you get that elephant up in the attic? What's that tree doing up in the attic? Well, you're talking about a different kind of trunk. And in that context, those things don't flash in your mind. When you're talking about the trunk in the attic, you're thinking of the box that you're going to bring down from the attic and put in the trunk of your car in order to go to Africa to be able to see the trunk of the elephant. All right? Same word used in even a similar context just like that, but has, in this case, very wide range of meaning. So also with biblical words. And number five, it can be used in the sense of a principle. And it's even translated in the New American Standard, a principle of law and a principle of faith in chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Or like a law of nature, you could say, a principle that you can find in nature as well. There's others, though. Does that make sense? So when you study Bible words... Study the context. Context determines meaning. A dictionary just gives you the variety of ways that word can be used. It gives you the range of meaning. And what I have on the slide here is the range of meaning. And we could add a seven, we could add an eight, and we could add others as well. All right. Twelve. For all who have sinned without law, and by the way... Nomos, that specific word there, is related. I think it is the negation of the same word that we're using without the alpha. Without law, those all who have sinned without the law. So he's talking about a particular category, a particular group of people, all who have sinned without the law. He's talking about those that are non-Jewish, all those that don't have the Mosaic law. I think that's the way he's using it in this context will also perish without that same Mosaic law, that covenant that God entered into with the nation of Israel at Sinai. That's the principle. In other words, God's judgment is going to be based on, to some extent, revelation. And if you don't have the Mosaic law, if you are not privileged to be given, in other words, you're non-Jewish, And you don't have the law, you still fall under judgment and you still perish. In other words, there's no hope for you as a Gentile. And the Jew would say, yeah, preach it. Yeah, I agree with that. Those Gentiles, they deserve judgment, but they will also perish without law. And then he's going to go on and narrow it down. So there's two parts. He's dealing with the non-Jew. And then the second part, he's summarizing the Jew and all who have sinned under the law. In other words, they are under the covenant. They're related to that Mosaic covenant, will be judged by the law. You might even see this somewhat like Hebrew poetry, two parallel lines, synonymous parallelism. You could even say they will also perish under the law unless they have obeyed the law in a proper sense. In other words, had they trusted in what God had provided. So anyway, that's verse 12. Now, this word, perishing, let me just take a little sidelight here, and maybe that's where we need to conclude. There are some, and this is a growing trend in our culture. That's the reason I'm going to mention it. There are some theologians, and some of them evangelical, but particularly amongst liberals, liberals that have a real problem with the concept of judgment, for one. They have a real problem with eternal separation from God or eternal damnation. They have a real problem. And there are some evangelicals today, and it's growing. Most of these emphasize the love of God, and the Bible emphasizes the love of God, but not to the neglect or the undermining of the severity or the judgment of God. And there's a tendency in the church today to shy away from the concept of judgment and wrath and to emphasize the love. Now, it's okay as long as you don't neglect the other, as long as you don't neglect the judgment. But some of those theologians are denying the concept of eternal separation. It's called annihilationism. And I don't want to mention names because I'm thinking of one writer that's an excellent writer, an excellent uh, theologian, except he is taking this position. What and that is that position? Annihilationism. What is, it? is that that you will be in? Yeah, it's the concept that uh, there's not eternal separation, but you'll well, uh, be eliminated. You'll be, eliminated. Oh, you'll be vaporized both spiritually and materially. But it's based on... Passages like this will also perish. The word perish. okay? And there's other words as well. It's based on passages that speak of eternal damnation as being in fire. In other words, they would make the argument, well, fire consumes until it totally obliterates. So they would use these passages, and if you study every one of these passages, they speak of eternal damnation and hell, and they use these words but they are twisting the meaning of these words. Or destruction, well, what does destruction mean? It means you totally destroy something. Well, you're totally destroyed, but it's an eternal condition. And they emphasize the love of God and the word perish, like in this context. But against is there's some passages that speak of the dead as conscious. In other words, they're dead, they're not annihilated. In fact, Jesus uses a parable, one of the parables where there's a conversation with those that are dead, they're conscious and they're aware. All right? There's also other passages. I'm going to give you several of these, but we don't have time. There are degrees of punishment. The Hitlers of the world experience more judgment than the Sunday school boys that never accept Jesus Christ. There's degrees. I'll give you some of those passages next time. So that argues for eternal punishment. It doesn't. Uh, support the idea of annihilationism. And there are some clear passages that use the word eternity or the idea of eternal punishment. There's several of those words as well. And we'll pick up at that point next week. Just wanted to make you aware of that kind of a trend within the church that gives you this idea of annihilationism. This passage does not support that along with the other passages as well. Who wants to close the word for us? Great. Great. Father, I just uh, thank you for, uh, for the love that you have for us. Um, we know that you are the pure and correct judge, and we just thank you for the grace that you've given us. Michael, we all deserve it. We truly deserve uh, Thank you for this beautiful the nature that you've given us. pray this especially to Eleanor and Jeremy, or Peter, that uh, he continues to.